Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, keep your household, the church, continually in your true religion, that we who trust in the hope of your heavenly grace may always be defended by your mighty power. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. So this week we are bringing our study of 1 Timothy and Titus to a close. Next week we'll begin with 2 Timothy. Um, And to kind of set the stage for this week, uh, a a rough outline of 1 Timothy, which um, remained hidden until it was revealed in this present day, is um, what you find if you look at the structure of 1 Timothy is that it actually goes through a couple cycles. And those cycles... Are, are very similar with some differentiation every once in a while, but that um, Paul discusses the Ephesian heresy. He then moves from that to congregational issues. And then after that, he ends with encouragement. And there's about four versions. This, this cycle happens about four times. And if you're reading it without recognizing sort of the pattern within the letter, it actually kind of feels like Paul's jumping around, sort of like this class has since we went. It's one of the reasons that I went thematically is because Paul's just going in circles the whole time. In week two, well, in week one, we sort of gave the background, but then in week two, we looked at the passages within those cycles where St. Paul was discussing the Ephesian heresy. We looked at the false teachers, and then we brought in some of the same from Titus. Um, in weeks three through seven, we did surveys on the passages which spoke to sound doctrine and the congregational issues. That means there's one more item in this cycle that we are looking at today, and that is the passages where St. Paul encourages his sons in the faith, Timothy and Titus, so that they can persevere in ministry. Timothy and Titus have been called to very difficult ministries. The the infection of false teaching had taken root and it was spreading and thriving throughout their congregations. St. Paul, always a pastoral father, acknowledges and sympathizes with them, but then he he uses these opportunities to call them to a, a deeper fidelity in the midst of their troubles. Further up and further in, as we read in the Chronicles of Narnia, his last book. So in order to work through these encouragements today, we we have six encouragements, but for the the sake of structure, uh, I'm going to take our first one as sort of an umbrella encouragement and see how the other five are examples of how that encouragement works out. I know without actually knowing what's going on that, is probably still kind of foreign to you. So um, the first overarching encouragement is this. Fight the good fight of faith. How are we to do this? That's the other five encouragements. By training in godliness, by finding our contentment in God, by pursuing unity with one another, by remembering our calling, and by guarding what has been entrusted to us. So, our umbrella encouragement is found in 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12. But as for you, man of God, 
Shun the false teachings and their rotten fruit. That's a paraphrase for that part. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so Paul starts this passage out by emphatically distinguishing Timothy and and by virtue Titus from the false teachers. But as for you, man of God. If you remember from week two, we talked about how Satan's branding of the false teachers' consciences um, was essentially an act of ownership. They are mine. Here, Timothy and Titus, by contrast, are men of God. If the false teachers belong to Satan, they and their ministries belong to God. The false teachers love to fight. We talked about that in week two as well. They devoted themselves to speculation and controversy. They promoted divisive debates and split the family of God. St. Paul acknowledges that there is indeed a fight that we are to undertake, but it is not the fight of the false teachers. The good fight of faith for fidelity to Christ is the fight that we have been enlisted in. The good fight of faith for fidelity to the gospel, to the family of God, and for God's mission to the world. These are the battles that we engage in just as Timothy and Titus did. So, how is, this, how is this fight fought? What are the weapons? On the one hand, in this passage, we see pursuing righteousness, pursuing godliness, pursuing faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. On the other, taking hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And so... The rest of our encouragements today, coming under this umbrella of fighting the good faith, are examples of how those weapons are wielded. The, the first is that in order to, to fight for fidelity, we must be trained for the spiritual nature of the battle. We see this in 1 Timothy 4, 7 well, 7b through 8, but 7 and 8. Train yourselves for godliness. For while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Training, repetition, habit-making. Human beings have been created as habitual creatures, and we are formed by the habits that we take up. This is why we believe, in, in our denomination particularly, in the, the importance of the liturgy, right? The, the liturgy is the training. It is the practice. It is the habits that we worship in and live out of. Now, when I hear the word practice, I'm instantly transported back to 2002 in the NBA playoffs. The Philadelphia 76ers had just been eliminated in the first round. And Allen Iverson, 
the superstar of the team was being interviewed after their elimination. And the interview surprisingly wades into some pretty deep waters. If you, if you listen to it, he talks about the effects of uh, the death of his friend and, and some other things that were going on in his life. But the media's portrayal of this interview presented Iverson as an entitled, self-absorbed superstar. Now, he might be, but it was not the content of the interview. It, the way the interview was presented focused slowly or solely on a particular moment. And here's the context behind this. Larry Brown was Iverson's coach at the time, and he had gone on record complaining about uh, Iverson missing a practice. This became the focus of the entire post-game interview. They had just been eliminated from the playoffs. Uh, I think it was six or seven games. I can't remember. Um, and, and instead of talking about the series or the game and how things went, people just wanted to ask about missing a practice. And Iverson responds, we're sitting here talking about practice. I mean, listen, we're talking about practice, not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice, not a game, not the game that I go out there and die for and play every game like it's my last, not the game. We're talking about practice, man. I mean, how silly is that? We're talking about practice. I know I'm supposed to be there. I know I'm supposed to lead by example. I know that, and I'm not shoving it aside like it don't mean anything. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. But we're talking about practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice. We're talking about practice, man. They had just been eliminated from the first round. And the only thing the reporters wanted to talk about was Iverson missing a practice. And Iverson acknowledges the importance of practice. Yet the reporters spun it as a rant about Iverson not believing that he needs to be practice or he needs to practice. Now, certainly, if you just hear that quote, that bit taking out of the context of the whole interview, then you would probably walk away with the same meaning, same understanding. And that's exactly what happened for a lot of people. But here's what Iverson actually says. He says what everyone knew at the time. He was the franchise player, right? He's the leader. How does someone ever achieve that level of athletic ability? Natural talent? Sure, but that only takes you so far. He got there by hours upon hours of practice. When you practice, you build habits. You run the same drills over and over again, millions of times, thousands of foul shots, so that when you are in the actual game, you can react without ever thinking about it. Practice makes that which is foreign to us our second nature. So what, what in the world does this have to do with First Timothy and Titus? Good question. Training, practice, and habit-making serves to make what is foreign to us second nature. The ministry of word and sacrament, the liturgy of the church, the daily office and prayer, confession, absolution, reading scripture, being in community with one another, and catechesis. These are all the forms of our practice. 
They are the means of grace that God gives us to train us for godliness and righteousness. And through these practices, we inhabit the gospel's proclamation. But here's the difference between the means of grace and shooting foul shots. We don't make ourselves better by participating in the means of grace. The phrase means of grace necessarily tells us that our posture in these practices is one of receiving. Furthermore, God doesn't kick us off the team for missing practices. Indeed, he keeps the gym doors open perpetually with the invitation to come in at any time. The means of grace are God's gift to us, to take, and to take part of them is to be trained in godliness. Our second example of fighting the good fight of faith is by finding our contentment in God. God is constant and never changing. Any other foundation for our happiness, our joy, our contentment is sinking sand. St. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 5-6, that the false teachers consider godliness as a way to make profit. But true profit is found when godliness is paired with contentment. Bill Mounts explains, behind the opponent's facade, their supposed intellectualism and false piety lies their real motivation for ministry. They want to make money. But St. Paul inverts their motivation. And he argues that it is godliness with contentment that is truly profitable. Paul then continues in verses 7 and 8 saying that, uh, giving the reason for this, and that's because we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And the phrase food and clothing there probably is just a way of saying all the basic needs. If we have all of our basic needs met, we will be content. And so the pursuit of wealth for contentment, security, and happiness is rightly diagnosed by the teacher in Ecclesiastes as ultimate meaningless and utter futility. This doesn't mean we can't enjoy material things. Indeed, that is their very purpose, merely to be enjoyed, never to be our ultimate satisfaction or our identity. But anchoring our contentment in Christ rather than stuff isn't easy. St. Paul writes in Philippians 4.11 that he had to learn how to be content. And he had to learn how to be content no matter what situation he found himself in. You know that popular verse that everyone likes to quote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Looks cute on a coffee mug. What that really means is, I have learned to be content through Christ, even when I'm getting stoned, even when I'm in prison, even as I watch Rome cut the heads off of my friends and brothers in Christ. Put that on a wall hanging. Contentment isn't easy. As long as we're fighting to put that contentment in Christ. 
It's not our natural state. To make matters worse, we live in a culture that assaults us with our own training program that feeds our discontent. Modern marketing practice is to invent a problem, convince you that your life is negatively affected by it, and then sell you their product, which conveniently claims to solve the problem they created. Social media only further encourages this discontent as it promotes the marketing of ourselves, that we present a carefully curated version of ourselves to portray to the world that highlights our mountaintops and hides our valleys from one another. And study after study after study has confirmed the negative effects of social media on our contentment and our happiness. Everything, absolutely everything, is seeking to form and shape us into its own desired image. Marketers and corporations want us to be consumers devoted to their products. The social media posts that get shared the most are the ones that stoke the most anger at others and hatred and build up applause for our tribes. Yay, us. 24-hour news channels, all 24-hour news channels, embed facts into their opinions in order to shape our view of the world because it's all marketing. Our culture feeds on our discontent, and it has a stake in ensuring that it does not lose its source of nutrition. The antidote to this parasitic formation practice and training is the gospel, inhabited and habituated through the means of grace. It's in these gifts that we can find our only true fulfillment of discontent, and that is Christ himself. How do you fight the good fight of faith? Find your contentment in Christ. Enjoy stuff. Maybe log off social media every once in a while. I went harsher on that than I'm into. I'll just, I'll let the Holy Spirit do his thing with that. Ask. Yeah. Anyways, our third encouragement is in fighting the good fight is um, St. Paul's instructions on how to deal with those who are divisive, which is found in Titus 3, 9, and 11. Avoid stupid controversies. That is not a paraphrase, by the way. That's the actual translation that I was writing from. Avoid stupid controversies. Uh, genealogy. I just imagine like my my four year old coming up saying, "We don't say stupid." I'm like, "Well, this one's from the Holy Spirit." So, <laughs> avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. After a first and second admonition, have nothing more to do with anyone who causes divisions, since you know that such a person is perverted and sinful, being self-condemned. If I could have a passage of scripture on a coffee cup or a wall hanging, like this is it. Again and again in the pastoral epistles, St. Paul warns us against divisiveness while recognizing that some division is unfortunately necessary. Here we find his most practical advice on the subject. Give them two warnings 
and then avoid them. Now, I, I, I've written and rewritten this section over and over and over because I, I kept walking away saying, that's probably not helpful for people to hear. That's just me getting angry and frustrated. So instead of like focusing on um, the, <laughs> the people that we should be giving two warnings to and avoiding, I want to talk about the flip side of this, purse, or this verse. And that's how do we then pursue good unity? Uh, there's a 17th century Lutheran theologian named Rupertus, Rupertus Meldinius. You just have to take my word for it. That's, it's, it's fine. Anyways, he wrote a tract on Christian unity. And it's in this tract that we, he, I, essentially as far as I could tell, he coined the proverb that we attribute to everyone from like Augustine to Gandalf. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. This is a great idea. But what the centuries since have shown us is that we really need clarity on what things are actually essential and what things are non-essential. To this... um, I found that the concept of theological triage uh, coined by our neighbor down the street, Dr. Albert Moeller, uh, to also be helpful. Theological triage categorizes doctrine as one of three tiers. First order doctrine, second order doctrine, and third order doctrine. First order doctrines are those things which you must believe in order to be a Christian. Examples, the Trinity, the full humanity and deity of Christ, and so forth. Much of our the Christological heresies of the first four centuries that form the confessions we, we still use today is in this category. If you deny these doctrines then whatever you're believing simply isn't Christianity. Second order doctrines are those that tend to be boundaries between denominations. So, for example, the doctrines that differentiate Baptists from Anglicans would include things like uh, church government. Uh, Baptists would would believe that the authority and autonomy belongs squarely to the local congregation. Whereas with Anglicanism, we, we have our view of Episcopal authority and the bishop stands at the head of that. Well, Christ stands at the head of that, but the Baptists would say that too. So it's all things considered, local autonomy, bishops, and so forth. Um, uh, the proper recipients of, of baptism, right? Now, what these disagreements do is they simply just place us within particular traditions of Christianity. It may limit us in partnering to some degree, but ultimately it still allows for unity and mission. So, for example, if, if, if a Baptist church invited me to preach on a Sunday, I would, I would gladly accept most of them. The same is true for Anglicans, by the way, most of them. Um, 
But if a Universalist Unitarian congregation requests me to preach, first I'm going to ask if, they, if they're sure they're not confused about who I am. <laughs> then second, I would have to reject the offer. Thanks, but no thanks. There's unity there. We, we are in different denominations for, for good reasons, but we work together. Third order doctrines are those which Christians within a parish, a diocese, even denominations can disagree and have unfettered fellowship with one another. So examples of this would include like the millennium in Revelation 20, the age of the universe. This is by far, really, the largest category of doctrines. And to these doctrines, we can also include those things which theologians have historically called a diaphora. Now, a diaphora, or is the plural, but a diaphora are things which the faithful Christians can hold to or reject as their conscience allows because scripture does not say something definitive on the subject. That's important. It doesn't say something definitive. We often have the tendency to put things into this category that don't actually belong there. Things that scripture neither forbids or asserts. So those are the three tiers. This framework doesn't solve all our problems. It is only a framework. Navigating the framework demands wisdom because it doesn't deal in nuance. Take the Trinity, for example. It's clearly an error to reject the Trinity such as the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons do. They're not Christians. If, however, I'm meeting with someone and they're struggling to understand the Trinity, they're kind of skeptical about it, um, they're asking questions about how God can be three in one, and it just—it's—they're struggling with like these Nicene-Constantinople concepts. Who hasn't? Right? That's not heresy. That's just a need for more catechesis. That's a nuance. There are clear boundaries that if you cross, you are not a Christian. And then there's just space and opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work in us and bring truth to more and more clarity over our lives. Avoid stupid controversies, dissensions, and quarrels. Give divisive people two chances, then avoid them. There's a lot of things that people argue about that simply don't deserve our attention. Christians have bought into the outrage economy and tribal cheerleading just as much as any other category of people. We like to cancel the cancel culture. Instead of spending your time reading a sixth article with absolutely nothing new to say regarding that thing that threatens a cultural apocalypse, what if we used that time to do... I don't know, literally anything else. (laughs) Avoid stupid things and do things that help you see Christ as more glorious and beautiful. Drink coffee, plant a garden, talk to your neighbor, 
Pray the daily office. Read poetry. Go for a walk. Reading two articles on a subject is fun. Three, if you actually want to understand what the other side says. There are things which necessitate division, and we should lament those things, not celebrate how right our side is. There's a whole lot more that we can unify over. Our fourth encouragement is to remember our calling. We fight the good fight of faith by remembering that which we have been called to. 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 14. Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I arrive, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhorting, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. As I said, Timothy and Titus's ministries were difficult. Both the potential for burnout and the temptation to just wash your hands and walk away were insanely high. To this, Paul says, keep doing what you're already doing. Remember your ordination. Remember the gift that was given to you exactly for this kind of ministry. It wasn't a guessing game for the Holy Spirit which gifts they needed in order to walk in their ministry. Sort of spiritual gift, plinko, where it comes down from above and it comes across and whatever box it lands in is the one you get. He exhorts Timothy, don't neglect that gift given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands. Now, prophecy in this passage, I would say most passages actually, but in this passage, it has less to do with foretelling the future and more to do with unveiling or revealing God's will in the present moment. By pointing Timothy back to his ordination, St. Paul reminds him of the assurance of God's calling to ministry that he received when Paul and the Council of Elders laid hands on him. And this gift of assurance helps persevere in your ministry. This assurance is then strengthened by the fact that the Holy Spirit gave him whatever gifts were necessary for him to do what he was called to do. When we consider ordination in the light of God's sacramental and charismatic assurance, which is truly probably the the most important gift given in these things, I think of the similarities between baptism and confirmation. In baptism, as we saw today, well, we didn't see it today, but we saw it in the baptism itself. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who grafts us into the family of God and gives us to he and gives us gifts to live out the Christian life and yes for ministry. Then in confirmation, through the laying on of hands and prayers, our faith, our gifts, and yes, our assurance is confirmed and strengthened. To ordained ministers, we might say, remember your ordination, remember your vows. But 
to the whole family of God, the priesthood of all believers. We say, remember your baptism. Remember your vows. We all have a calling to live out. A participation in and a share in the ministry of the church. And we are all gifted by the Holy Spirit for that ministry. There are times when our callings and ministry become exceptionally difficult. And in the midst of the difficulty or suffering, remember your baptism. And recall the assurance that you have in the gospel. Persevere, not in your own strength, but in the God's grace often given to us through the means of grace. To paraphrase Sandra McCracken's song, Grace Upon Grace, which is itself quotes from some, some of the church fathers, all that God asks, his grace provides. It is not true that God doesn't bring you to something that uh, we, like, we like to think that God won't bring us to something that, we, we, that is bigger than us, right? That's not true. He brings us to a lot of things that we cannot handle that requires us to lean into his grace and his strength. All that God asks of us, his grace provides. Not our gifts, not our talent, not our abilities, not our wisdom, God's grace. How do we persevere in the life that God has called us to. His, gate, his grace provides. Our fifth and our final encouragement for fighting the good fight today is to guard what has been entrusted to you. Uh, breaking apart parts of 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse 8, 11, 17, and 18, just to kind of give a, a background. Uh, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance of the glory of the blessed God, which, with which I, Paul, have been entrusted. So he, one of the big issues that we see with the false teachers was their misuse of the law. And um, Paul kind of works through a list of that, and then he just says, you know what, what else is contrary to the gospel? Which gospel? The gospel which God has entrusted to me. Then in the very next verse, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. At the end of the letter, chapter 6, verse 20, St. Paul ends with Timothy, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. The continuing theme of this class has been fidelity. Fidelity in the Christian life. And we see through these bookend verses of 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 6, 20 that the pastoral epistles themselves are practical examples of what it looks like to hand down sound doctrine ensuring the fidelity of the church to God, his gospel, his mission, and his family. St. Paul has spent six chapters entrusting to Timothy and three chapters to Titus what God had entrusted to him. And he ends by charging them to do the exact same thing. Okay. 
God entrusted the gospel in mystery to Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes, the kings, the poets, and the prophets by promise and by prophecy, by type and by shadow. The gospel was then revealed in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this same Jesus entrusted the revealed gospel to the 12 apostles and St. Paul. These apostles then entrusted that gospel to the church. In the post-apostolic age, this handing down of the gospel is both symbolically and actually entrusted to the bishops who entrusted to their diocesan parishes. This has been happening for millennia. Indeed, the New Testament church has been guarding and entrusting the gospel and sound doctrine for at least 2,000 years. How do we know this? Because we are here today. Now, it has had to do this with, at times, difficulty and much suffering and duress, but no less successful. Again, we, we know it's successful because by virtue of the testimony of us gathering today. We also know why it's successful. Christ is the one who builds his church. The one who conquered death, who took the worst that this world could do. Suffered through it and then walked out of a tomb. The same one who conquered death has given us assurance that nothing will stop him from building his church. And it's with this assurance that we are free to take part in the very same mission without fear. We received the very same charge given to Timothy and Titus, to Paul and the Twelve, to the poets and the prophets and the patriarchs. Guard what has been entrusted to you and pass on the sacred deposit to one another, to our families, and to an unbelieving world who is desperately searching for something which is true, good, and beautiful. With God's help. Behold, the risen one says, I am with you always. He says to us in assurance, even to the end of the age. Amen.